Hey everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the First Nations on whose lands we are producing this podcast and pay respect to the elders of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, past, present and emerging. Let's go. Hi and welcome to The Familiar Strange. I am Carolyn West, your familiar stranger for today. And welcome to the podcast, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia Pacific and College of Arts and Social Sciences, Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science and produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Today I am really, really excited to be joined by Adrian Watts, who is a PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne. Adrian was actually one of my teachers uh, during my recent degree for a couple of different subjects. And one of the things that he talked about quite often in our classes was activism and anthropology. I've had the absolute pleasure of reading his dissertation over the last week in preparation for this interview and I'm really excited today to be talking with him a little bit more about the austerity measures in the United Kingdom and his fieldwork living with a group of squatters in London. We talk a little bit about what it's like to enter the field at a young age. We talk about activism, about what it means to be an anthropologist, and we also talk about, of course, what it's like living in a squatting environment. Before we dive into today's interview, did you know that we also have a Facebook chats group? You can join us by searching The Familiar Strange Chats on Facebook, and you can provide some valuable insight into today's interview if it tickled your fancy. So without further ado, here's my interview with Adrian. Hopefully it sounds really nice this week because we have been very graciously using one of the podcasting booths at the University of Melbourne now that we are allowed back on campus. So enjoy. I picked anthropology off of the recommendation of a family member who had studied it and then dove into marketing and I was like oh that sounds great um the natural progression of things right mm. yeah uh, an arts degree that can get you a job <laughs> amazing and then I so I just exited high school at 16 and uh came into uni was looking for something to study uh I'd been sort of like forced into uni by my parents uh when I when I finished school I was like I never want to do that again I hated school I'm done with it. I'm done with reading um, and writing. I'm going to learn a trade and get a job and earn some money. And my mum was like, absolutely not. You're not going to do that. You're studying a degree. I'm taking you to university. She took me to like the orientation where typically oh students would, would go by themselves. Um, I'm getting PTSD from my own experience. <laughs> so I, I went to the orientation day. I walked around some desks and saw an anthropology desk and did the talk and was interested and just went with that because it sounded... Um, interesting and also done a little bit of traveling and just thought this is a good excuse to travel the world and do an arts degree which is what I think a lot of people are thinking when they pick anthropology they want this kind of worldly perspective which you don't have at the age of 16 it's a mm. attractive thing and so I started the good degree and I just didn't stop um, it was three years and then I had an honors year on top of that and then at the end of honors I didn't know what to do I started applying for work for a few months and didn't get any bites Perth is a notoriously difficult 
job market, as Rough. you know, yep. coming also from Perth. <laughs> and uh, then I just thought, fuck it, like maybe a PhD is on the cards. Um, <laughs> I sort of quit pretty early on, though. I wouldn't say that I had reached the end of my tether and patience when it came to applying for work, but I was tempted to go back and continue studying. Um, so I was looking around for PhDs. A lot of uh, universities now are releasing PhDs, like programs, um, where they have some guidelines about what they're looking for and you can apply uh, you can kind of send through a proposal suggesting an angle that you might take on answering this question, which I did, um, especially to universities overseas because I mm. wanted to get out of Perth. Mm. Perth notoriously being one of the most remote places, remote places in the, the world. Yeah. Um, it's the most remote city, I think, over a million people. I don't know why I have that fact. <laughs> I think everyone who has left Perth has that fact somewhere. At the back yeah, of their yeah, yeah. It, it, Perth, Perth things. <laughs> So did you do your honours in, in anthropology? Yeah. Like, okay, what was your honours project? Degree was anthropology and sociology. Right. Um, so I didn't actually do any field work. Uh, mm. It was like a social theory-based thesis, and it was on uh, protest movements in the US, like a combined look at puppet theatre protest and the plays of uh, radical theatre. Cool. <laughs> uh, which I have not read in a long time, and I have no idea what I said in that honours <laughs> thesis. Um, that was... Oh, it was five years ago, you know? Yep. Uh, and I was young and naive. I'm sure it was interesting. And it first introduced me to sort of Occupy and the Anti-Globalization Network, um, which became kind of more prominent in my thinking later on in the PhD, mm-hmm. as I met squatters who um, came from the Occupy movement, of course. I guess we're kind of like jumping forward a little bit here. But so maybe if you want to explain what your PhD was on from the beginning, I guess. Is yeah. there ever a beginning to it? Like a going into it? Yeah, please, please. Yeah. Like, how did you get into, like, well, obviously, like, yeah, coming from your honours degree, like, how that extended onto then, like, the Occupy movement and then looking at squatters in London, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, there's the, the practical element of it was that um, there was a British university looking for, like, a PhD student in some area related to the Commons. And I had a couple of contacts in the UK who I knew were squatting, and I had, of course, this uncle who recommended anthropology mm. had been a part of the squatting scene, so I was kind of interested ah, in this. that's a, the connection. Right. Mm, um, mm. And, uh, and also, uh, my supervisor, um, Sean Martin Iverson, whose work I am enamored with and I absolutely love everything he writes, he did a kind of um, political project in um, Indonesia uh, where he lived with a group of punks and kind of wrote about the underground music scene. So this was like a huge source of inspiration for me. So I wanted to do, do something similar. I wanted to do something brave. Um, and I was mm. kind of politically active and cycling through radical groups at the time looking for someone who would take me in and who I agreed with long-term and was um, interested in working with and uh, had kind of burned out through that process, I think. So I was done with Perth, was done with Australia, wanted something more. Radical submitted, and different, yep. Submitted this PhD application, got rejected after an interview. Um, I think my impression is because of the kind of uncertainty of hiring someone from Australia to do a PhD in the UK. Mm. Um or it could just be it was a bad proposal. Nonetheless, uh, I took Maybe that... Maybe you were bad at being interviewed. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is funny now in this context. Yeah, well, we'll leave it to the, uh, the mm. people. Mm. Uh, so I submitted this PhD application. It got rejected. But I had a proposal. So I was kind of tweaking it over the year after I submitted my honours thesis and was working with a few um, professors and, and uh, teachers uh, at the University of Melbourne and um, ANU and another... Um, teacher in, at Sydney University. Mm. 
and uh, and was getting like interest and uh, also a lot of feedback and criticism, uh, which was great. Uh, and uh, was kind of tweaking that over the year. Met Aaron, of course, who's um, who had like written previously on protest movements as well, um, particularly kind of uh, um, performance theater in, uh, mm. in this context. So a little bit of cro- crossover there, and that's all I needed really to <laughs> submit a um, application to her. And she read through the proposal and loved it. Um, from what I can remember, we just kind of kicked it off from there. She sort of represented the thesis during the application rounds, and I'm assuming carry, carried it most of the way. <laughs> it wasn't uh, my doing. So I guess, like, there is a real sense of activism, both, like, through your work and obviously you as a person outside of anthropological work, um, and also through your informants within thesis um so i guess like would you consider yourself an activist yeah absolutely great glad we've ruled that one out and um (laughs) this is going to require a degree of self reflexivity with this one um Mm -hmm. but how do you think being involved in anthropology has changed your relationship with being an activist wow good question when i first went into the phd program with a you know i of course had these lofty ambitions of doing a radical um anthropological project and working alongside squatters and anarchists who, you know, in many ways disavowed uh, the dominant social order and also, um, by extension, universities Mm. and academics, which is an interesting and tricky thing to do. But um, I think that's part of the reason why I piqued Darren's interest was um, that I had these kind of radical ambitions and wanted to do something different. And I had been reading people like Max Haven and Alex Kazanovich, who, of course, I taught in the subject that you took. Yeah. Um, and uh, who were working alongside movements and trying to theorize how anthropologists can play a role in that. So the emphasis for me going in was collaborative. It was thinking through and working alongside these people who were who I respected as both both fellow activists and critical thinkers as well, and who were kind of theorizing their action along the way and were capable of self-reflexivity and criticality, which was hugely important for me to be able to recognize that. Um, and then when I got there... Um, these ambitions were kind of dashed a little bit and crushed. Um, I found that, uh, and of course, when you go into a Scottish project like this, you need a pretty extensive ethics application that details yeah. how you're going to do this safely um, and how you're taking into consideration other people's safety, which is hugely important. And so I spent a lot of time working on making sure that this was like a consensual project and people were interested in it um, and that it was mm-hmm. not just my project, but something they were interested in conducting too. Uh, mm. And then when I got there, found that no one really cared. I mean, it was a labor of its own getting people to care about my PhD. Um, and, you know, almost um, presumptuous of me to think that they wanted to participate or contribute mm. at all, I should say. Um, they liked the idea of having an anthropology student around to kind of ask some questions and record what they're doing because they thought it was important and worth recording. On the other hand, I don't think they... I think that I had to put in work to really communicate to them why this was something worth caring about and why their anonymity was something worth protecting. Mm. And so I kind of fell back into this role of like an anthropologist more so than an activist, I think, in attempting to, to communicate why the project was important. And also, I think my experience of, of living alongside them, which was such a privilege to do, and um, I'm, I was so lucky to be invited into like the most intimate spaces of mm. their homes. Um, on the other hand, it was quite a sort of violent and precarious space, of course, being um, squatting being like a sort of dangerous um, practice to, to take on uh, long term. And, uh, and that experience of violence, um, I kind of felt like 
pushed me more so towards identifying with this anthropologist role in a way that could help me distance myself from the squatting mm. scene and, and the kind of activism there. So I feel like there was almost a protective element or kind of like, like a bracketing power of, of being an anthropologist that allowed me to sort of say, to keep my distance um, and to kind of identify with, with, with something else, um, which is to say that's a huge privilege that I did have the option, for example, if things got too hectic to leave. Um, and that's a mm. privilege that other squatters didn't have. But nonetheless, the sheer brutality of some of those experiences and the trauma that it inflicted, I think there was kind of a useful and powerful gendered, unequal ability there to kind of um, return to my anthropological roots and kind of focus more on that than the activism. You touched on this just now, having a very gendered experience in that space. And I also wonder about like your age because you've sort of alluded to the fact that you were quite young when you did the when you did the field work so how old would you have been when you um i would have been 24 when i did the field work yeah that's that's a lot 24 or 25 Mm. yeah so do you feel that um that your age played an impact both like in terms of like gathering the information that you need in order to like create your thesis but then also navigating those spaces as a 24 year old man Hugely different, of course, and these spaces were, I should say, um, uh, overwhelmingly male-gendered. There were a few women here and there, but it was mostly young men who were also typically white, although that wasn't a rule. I'd say it's still majority white, though. Um, So, I mean, I kind of settled in quite quite easily there. Um, There was a kind of shared similarity and background that allowed allowed them to identify with me and for me to identify with them, the squatters, that is. And so, you know, and my sort of confidence as a young man who was interested in radical politics brought me respect mm. in a culture that values those those things. And also I was brazen and stupid um, and, uh, and kind of um, ambitious. And, uh, of course, these qualities are kind of prioritised in an environment where living conditions aren't so um, nice. Mm. So um, I could assume an experience of the city in this way that was kind of uniquely open to me as a young man um, mm. who had no real cares apart from um, politics and, and kind of, you know, being radical and, and so on. Um, and that, that afforded me some, some autonomy as a, as a young researcher um, that I don't think would have necessarily been open to a woman entering that space. Mm. It would have been an entirely different experience, perhaps like more so hostile. Yeah, so that's how I think, you know, I think those spaces are hugely gendered, of course, um, especially now. And we'll talk a little bit about this, but... Um, squatting was criminalized in 2012 and uh, that kind of piece of legislation made it illegal to occupy uh, residential property. So Mm -hmm. the movement had kind of been thrusted into these non-residential spaces that were more prone to eviction, more prone to violence, more prone to kind of precarity and uncertainty and, you know, typically were abandoned shelters that weren't designed to be lived in. Mm. And so the kind of conditions of squatting, I think while they've always been there in the squatters movement um, from the very start, perhaps the kind of more kind of um, draconian quality, the kind of conditions, uh, the places in which people lived took on a more, ho- took on a more hostile um, direction. And that meant that I think men were the ones who kind of stuck around to, to really stick it out. Like they were the ones enduring these conditions in order to continue practicing their autonomy and their rejection of the state and, and so on. Mm. So I guess that's a really good segue into while you were there, what were some of the daily organisations and rhythms at the Black Stag? That's, it's, it's a like an old pub, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so it was an old pub on the outskirts of London mm. and it was occupied by about 20 20 people, I'd say, you know, two or three were, were women. The majority were young men um, and mostly from the UK, although we had um, 
you know, migrants from overseas, of course, from places like Egypt and as far as that. Um, and it was constantly changing and, and moving. Uh, people were entering based on friends of the friends who were kind of moving through the scene. Um, and there was a, for at least the first few months, an open door policy. So anyone could come in and if there was space, they would take you in. Mm-hmm. Um, which is partly why they were so enthusiastic to have me over. I mean, it wasn't a huge deal to really find a, a spot for me on the floor. Um, and my routine was really kind of normal, I guess. Uh, it was waking up, you know, usually there was like a communal coffee <laughs> going around. <laughs> we would talk, talk a lot about politics. We would take the bins out. We would go dumpster diving for food. Mm-hmm. Um, we would do artistic things. A lot of them were, of course, young people who were um, students who had either sort of like finished their studies and didn't know what to do and, and found that they could kind of practice creativity in a way that wasn't open to them before they were squatting. So they had a lot of free time to learn instruments, paint, um, create things. Aesthetically, like squatting is a, is a fun and exciting thing because of all the materials available to you. Um, this space, the space that I was living in with them was just full of bric-a-brac, like uh, such a wide variety of materials that I don't know where they found, you know, that were picked out of dumpsters that were found on the side of the road and repaired, you know, in every corner was kind of stacked to the, to the top with um, like paintings and books and rugs and, you know, like golf clubs and whatever you can think mm. of, whatever they could find, they'd, they'd kind of bring it back and it could be used for, for a future purpose to fix a toilet, to repair a broken fridge, to make a piece of art. So it was an intensely creative and exciting atmosphere to be a part of. And there were always impromptu, impromptu activities going on, um, like uh, music events and, um, and, and other things like this. So the routine was not a, was not a nine to five. Just to kind of no uh, nine to fives to in the short. in the black stag. Yes, mm. exactly. And then I mean, in the evenings it was kind of like a wind down. So people would typically do jobs during the day if there was something that needed to be repaired or a toilet that needed to be uh, installed. Mm. Um, and then after that work was done during the day, we'd just kind of wind down and people would smoke and drink and talk and maybe someone would chuck on a movie. Uh, cool. Yeah, that's super chill. So I guess I wonder if you can speak a little bit more about the arrangement that the squad has had with the owner of the building and also the local council, because what you've sort of, I guess, just alluded to is that there is like a degree of like labour that's involved with squatting, especially in this circumstance. So I entered the the scene in 2018, um, which was six years, I guess, after the legislation to criminalise squatting came into force, which meant that squatters were kind of being pushed into these industrial spaces and non-residential spaces. And so there were kind of two directions I feel that that movement went, and it's absolutely not exhaustive, but these kind of two directions were present in the squat I was living in. Um, One was that squatters kind of embraced their autonomy in more kind of radical ways and so they saw this kind of freedom from the state this rejection of of the of wage labor and the workday as as a kind of pathway to to more autonomy to more freedom and so would embrace this kind of enduring and intensifying precarity as a pathway to to achieving that um, which meant that the the more violent aspects of living in these spaces weren't structural discrimination to be resisted, but part of the lifestyle of being an anarchist squatter in the underground scene. Um, and you identify with those aspects of that lifestyle. So mm. violence, precarity, decay, it's broken down things, mold in the mm. walls, asbestos that's poisoning you was, was another part of of existence, but also th- something that something that you rejected alongside this kind of wider project of destabilizing <laughs> the social order and therefore cleanliness, newness, and and so on. These aspects, of course, being 
the kind of qualities of capitalism that lead us to consume, overconsume, and you know, and so mm. on. So this is also a kind of environmentalist um, rejection of of consumption of uh, conventional consumption pra- practices. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of say in the thesis, like the paint spill on the jacket was something to be worn with pride. It wasn't something to be. It wasn't therefore something that you threw out uh, as a piece of trash and it went into the dumpster because the dumpster was where you found the things that gave you the freedom to be a squatter in the first yep. place. Mm. But to answer your question, I think the the other direction that the squatters movement went was was a kind of increasing awareness of the kind of formal nature of temporary agreements that were kind of gaining traction around that time. So the, the need to kind of engage with property owners and councils on their level in order to kind of convince them that squatting could be a friendly pro-community project and that therefore squatters should take take up this opportunity to be creatives, to be young, you know, regenerators or guardians as part of a, a project to kind of take back the city. And so and so squatting took on this kind of more formal language of, of cooperation with the state in order to achieve a different kind of autonomy, uh, one that wasn't pure, but and that recognised some degree of compromise as inevitable, but uh, mm-hmm. but uh, still like was able to maintain those kind of that language of uh, spatial justice and political radicalism within the context of a kind of community-led project that aimed to take back buildings from the state at a time of you know austerity and neoliberal crisis. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that the buildings that are being squatted in are not only the site of artistic creation, but are in a way very much an art piece in themselves, just based on what is collected, how things are gone about, the restoration of them. I think that's that's super interesting. I think you were talking to one of your informants, Big Tom, where they said that they kind of like identify with this idea of that their caretakers on rotation. Am I right in saying that at the end of your fieldwork, they were actually evicted from the space? Is that right? Yep. So I'm wondering how that identification with being caretakers on rotation changed throughout the course of your time living there and also once sort of eviction became evident. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that now. So what I kind of, I mean, what the PhD is about is a number of squatters really in the building kind of becoming increasingly filled with a sense of like they hadn't achieved anything or like this kind of um, radical autonomy that they kind of practiced um, after Occupy, you know, when Occupy was evicted, many of them kind of found refuge in the squatters movement. Um, So these were kind of ex-Occupy activists who were discovering a politics for the first time, Mm. being young. You know, turned to the squatting scene, turned to these kind of precarious spaces where a lot of drugs were circulating and um, a lot of music as well and and also the kind of creative aspects of the movement there. But we're becoming increasingly concerned that this wasn't really a productive political project and so wanted something more and therefore we're kind of turning to these more formal arrangements Mm. and aiming to push for that. And so I saw the kind of language of the kind of property guardian, which they called just sort of being caretakers on rotation, coming through. It's the idea that, and this is a kind of new technology that's really only emerged in the last two decades, but it's a, it's a legal technology that allows a company or a property owner to kind of rent out a non-residential space and turn it into a property that um, people can live in without all the rights of a of a tenancy. Mm-hmm. Um, so tenants, quote unquote, uh, they're actually called guardians who are essentially security, enter a space that is a non-residential space and they sign a kind of terms of agreement, so not a lease, that has often way more draconian terms on it and then act as both kind of tenants and 
and, and security, essentially. Mm. Um, and this is becoming a kind of more popular thing with global financial crisis, with a kind of rising rates of empty buildings and the need for more affordable living uh, conditions in yeah. the UK. Yeah, especially in London. Mm. Yes. Um, so I saw the squatters kind of adopting this language and they had um, they had organised as a company. So a few of them were kind of signed up to an official company contract and they'd kind of made their negotiations negotiations with the owner and the council as a property guardian so promising to kind of enter this space that the owner had left uninhabited for some years um, that had kind of been subject to a fire previously that had kind of ravaged through the ground floor and left just burn marks and soot everywhere Mm. um, and promised to kind of regenerate this space while they were living there so it was it was recognizing that there could be a kind of mutual agreement there between the owners and the squatters and that it could be beneficial so We'll occupy your building as a kind of informal um, tenant. That means that you don't pay empty building rates, interestingly. And we, you know, possibly may regenerate some aspects of the building for you and repair it. And that's what you get from this relationship. We get our kind of a relative degree of autonomy, which is a great, a great thought and a great thing. And it allows squatters a certain degree of longevity that perhaps hasn't been present in the movement for some time now since criminalization. Mm. Um, but of course was also subject to a lot of um, criticism and uh, interest from the council who took a kind of um, critical eye toward what they were doing and were less interested in in the terms of their arrangement with the owner than how this was legal, you know, how it was unsafe, um, you know, and therefore kind of uh, communicated with the squad in this way through a language of legal notices that were telling them that this needs to be fixed or you'll, you'd, you'd lose your house or uh, you know, we're putting a prohibition order on your space mm. because um, we found several category <laughs> one hazards that re- need to be fixed before anyone can live here and, and so on. So the squatters were constantly negotiating the terms of this arrangement with the owner and it's kind of grey area here. I mean, there's no real rule book for doing this um, while constantly <laughs> under fire from the council who, you know, would have had kittens if they'd ever seen um, the actual conditions the squatters were living in. So the squatters had a certain agreement with the owner. Was there sort of like a minimum expectation of the work that was to be done in the building during their caretaking time? Because from what you've just said, it sounds like more that minimum expectation was actually enforced by the council rather than the owner of the building. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, This is a really common tale. I think a lot of kind of property owners in the UK who buy who mass buy property there and are now essentially sitting on on that empty property. It's called land banking, but it basically means like a, it's kind of a speculative investment in the future of the city, that it will become profitable. And so, you know, the, the kind of ruins that we're used to thinking through don't really apply here because the entire landscape is financialized. Mm. This property will become profitable in the future. It's a matter of how long I can keep it before I speculate that it will become profitable again. Mm. Um, which was happening, it is happening all around London at all times. So the owner was interested in keeping this building for as long as possible, but was also dealing with the pressures of a global financial crisis. And, you know, it was rumoured within the squad that he was also losing a number of properties, just to the sheer fact that many of them were kind of losing. I mean, he was just losing money. Like, people were saying that he was hemorrhaging money. I don't know how true this is. Uh, Mm. But nonetheless, I don't know, this could give legitimacy to the idea that he didn't really care what they were doing. He wasn't necessarily invested in in this space anymore. And, uh, you know, in fact, 
toward the end of my field work was looking to kind of replace the squatters with a secure tenancy, so someone who would be willing to pay rent. Interesting. Even though it was in the condition that it was in. Right. It was an agreement that was never signed. So mm. the kind of terms of this arrangement were grey, informal, unwritten, undocumented. Um, and so while the squatters had kind of lofty ambitions about what this space could become was always underwritten by this sense that they could be evicted at any time. And in fact, as you mentioned, um, they were, were evicted in 2019. Mm, so how does that precariousness with that sort of living, breathing space, how does that affect the way people go about their lives in, in the building? In so many ways, I guess. Mm. I, so I saw a lot of people in the building who I talked to a lot of people in the building who would just say, like, you know, if we were ever evicted, we would just formally squat it again. Like, we would hold out until they sent the bailiffs around to kick us out. Um, but until then, this space is ours. Mm. But on the other hand, there there was just kind of a sense that people had settled into a routine and they, and they took that for granted, I think. You know, when I entered the building, they'd been there for a year already and uh, they were there for another year during my field work. So there's a sense that nothing could really go wrong here. Um, it will all kind of sort itself out and the council doesn't have any real basis to kick us out until the owner budges. Yep. And that often meant that the council was filing orders on the owner, not them. Right. Um, the owner was the one who was kind of under fire here. But, uh, like, uh, of course, there are other buildings always being opened around London, some not necessarily as secure and long-term as that, but I think people, you know, in order to be able to live in that kind of space, you never really feel at home because to have a home is to admit that when you're evicted, you, you're losing something. I think a lot of them would say it's about the community aspect or it's about the freedom and mobility that comes with squatting not this idea that the space is now yours to kind of decorate and you know those things are artificial and and always kind of ephemeral um and so you can't become too invested in them Mm, i guess community has a sense of like permanence and longevity Mm. that perhaps the building space doesn't provide how is how so how is community kind of created in these spaces especially when i got the sense from a couple of the chapters that i read that there was sort of a bit of a conflict between people who saw the space as sort of more democratic, I suppose, as opposed to like for individualistic kind of intentions. Yeah. And this really goes back to autonomy, which is a kind of a concept that threads its way through every chapter there. Um, You know, the struggle on one hand to to intensify these aspects of the kind of old autonomous movements that privileged the experience of the individual um, versus a kind of new collective autonomy that would have to kind of take on board the idea that we're all in this together and mm-hmm. therefore we need to be considering other options in order to sustain ourselves. And that includes property guardianships and temporary arrangements. So I saw a real tension there between squatters who saw that experience and that practice as um, as a statement of freedom, a statement of freedom from the state, but also of responsibility, freedom from responsibility, potentially. Um, the freedom to take drugs, self-isolate, and to destroy myself, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, to be homeless is to be is to be free, and I, I heard that language from a lot of squatters directly, um, this idea that, um, you know, homelessness is the ultimate sort of experience of autonomy. The homeless man on the street mm. doesn't have any care. He can take drugs whenever he wants. He can do whatever he wants. He isn't subject to the same routines and habits of a, of a wage laborer, for example, which is a dangerous language game, I think, and ultimately is quite a sort of neoliberal imaginary that sees all risk as my own but then again if you kind of claim all risk as as private and as my own then you can't be discriminated against or experience violence if that makes sense so it's also you can have take on this kind of protective quality as if Mm -hmm. to say like i am not subject to violence i choose this violence as an alternative to the violence of living under capitalism for example 
But then, of course, we saw also this collective autonomy kind of coming through where squatters were increasingly rejecting this language of individuality and attempting to put the focus more on certain aspects of mutual aid and care, care again being another aspect, another another concept that kind of works its way through the thesis here in the sense that, you know, increasingly around the world, I think a lot of communities and individuals are facing budget cuts from government are facing harsh austerity measures, are facing huge disasters where the state is refusing to intervene. I'm going to use Grenfell Tower as a kind of case study here uh, of an example where the state, despite the kind of visibility of a crisis that no one could deny. I mean, there were just pictures abound of, of this building, um, you know, catching a light. And then I think some, some 70 people were lost in that fire. Despite that, the state refused to kind of step in um, and help and provide assistance. And you had Theresa May apologi- apologizing in the days after for the mm. for the lack of real kind of state intervention here. I mean, people were sleeping in parks who had no homes. There's also a sense that as a result of this, autonomy doesn't necessarily offer a, a solution because it's kind of synonymous with abandonment in some ways. Like my freedom from the state allows me a certain degree of autonomy and self-determination, but also it means that it allows the state to continue to, to kind of pull back and retreat. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my autonomy feeds <laughs> a state that uh, is invested in me, not, you know, uh, investing in it, I guess, uh, would be one way to put that. So we need a kind of like more of a collective movement. And I saw that kind of uh, urgency coming from squatters like Big Tom, as you mentioned, um, who, who were recognizing that this is a dead end for, for kind of action um, and who wanted an, a kind of alternative to that. And so... The emphasis was on care. The emphasis in the building was on building meetings as a way of communicating doubts and criticism, but also of creating a sense of community where people could actually see each other for the first time as a group in the day and therefore negotiate that identity, that kind of collective identity. I picked up a little bit on this public versus private image of squatting. So I think I think it was in when you were talking about your work with Respace, where often squatting projects that, that were very public, that had public people to come over for like music gigs and art shows and that sort of thing, had a very different sense of like identity and autonomy as opposed to a squat that wasn't necessarily as public facing. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more to that. Yeah, so for the people listening, Respace is a, a kind of not-for-profit organisation who I worked with alongside the squatters who have kind of built a model on on this sort of style of squatting that uh, engages property owners and councils as, as formal and as a possibility for people to kind of take communities, especially to take back their their surroundings from the state and uh, and launch like a formal project in these spaces um, to host markets and, and weekend activities and so on and spaces for women and mm-hmm. uh, pregnant women. To, to come and hear advice and, and communicate with, with each other. So Respace are kind of taking on this problem head on and, and their activism is more aimed towards kind of state, state-based state solutions, state outcomes. Um, so they're engaging more so this language of cooperation and, and uh, you know, also institutionalization and uh, are embracing companies' structures as a, as a kind of compromise in order to move into these spaces and gain access to them um, that otherwise perhaps wouldn't be available to them. But yeah, I mean, the public, public and private, I mean, this language isn't so much important for me, I think, politically, but I think it does emphasise certain dynamics within the squatting scene, a certain kind of politics and the way that we view that politics. Um, so public politics is, is, of course, something that is easy to identify with. I think when we think kind of radical politics, we think social movement politics politics and we think of you know noisy 
you know, uh, incendiary politics, whereas private politics is something that kind of happens on the backstage. Mm-hmm. Um, it's private. It happens in the intimate spaces of the home. It's less visible. I think for, for many of the squatters working within this movement, politics happened on the backstage for them. Politics was a kind of lifestyle. Um, it was a way of... And, and I think that's important, right? Like, if politics is a lifestyle and it's backstage, then you don't really need to change the public. Um, you don't need to win over the public because your circumstances are enough. Um, your freedom is enough, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Whereas kind of corporations like Respace perhaps reject this idea and, and are looking to kind of take on the public in a way that can kind of gain momentum and the support of, of, of a larger community in bringing about a form of social justice that, mm-hmm. that can't just be achieved on the private level. Yeah, because when uh, squatting was criminalised in the UK, I think you mentioned that a lot of the policy and sort of like public relations spin on the situation was around how it would benefit homeowners as opposed to how, like what they were doing to sort of like help and change the squatting from the squatters point of view right yeah absolutely so of course there was a massive media campaign around this idea that we should criminalize squatting um suggesting that squatters are the people who enter your homes when you go on holiday for example which is an infringement of your right your ability to work and save up to buy a space only to have it taken back by by squatters so this idea that they were always a threat a kind of lingering, hostile, you know, collective that you could... Hiding could, in the shadows waiting right. for you to leave with your suitcases. Yeah, it pri- yep, provides pouncing. a pretty, um, pretty mm. captivating image. And, uh, of course, when you when you own a house, it, security is an important question here. So there's a lot of appeals to this sort of property-owning democracy that this needs to be done. And I kind of argue, I mean, I don't think that's a coincidence. You know, at a time when so the global financial crisis happened in 2008 and then the government introduced austerity as a way to kind of mitigate the aspects of that that crisis, meaning that many people couldn't afford a home. And I think here was a critical turning point where a lot of people were turning to squatting as a potential solution and a refuge um, at a time of increased housing precarity. Um, So we saw this lashing out from politicians um, at the idea that squatting could still be a solution, right? Like, can we allow squatters to continue to kind of take our homes at a time when we really can't afford to be giving away anything? we, We can barely afford disability um, you know, funding and pensions, let alone luxurious aspects of squatters that mm. are able to just go around and live wherever they want. I mean, the reality was that, you know, you rarely hear of squatters in the first place and most people who squat are genuinely homeless. Um, and of course, there was already legislation in place to kind of criminalise squatters who, who were in your house. Um, and we saw these kind of arguments being rehearsed at the time. Nonetheless, this kind of media camp pain, I think, helped fuel a sense of anxiety that um, carried that legislation through, which ended up being not its own sort of legislation, but kind of slipped into a separate bill at the last moment. So initially, the urge, the push was to criminalise squatting um, in total, and up ended up being squatting in residential spaces as like a single line in a, in a different piece of legislation that went through. Mm, interesting. There's a certain, I feel like we shouldn't deny the aesthetic um, attractiveness of that Mm. kind of lifestyle. There's right? a bohemian There's a kind element. of bohemian mm. element. We're seeing a kind of resurgence of interest in ruins as kind of cool and happening um, and as potentially part of a project, like mm. a kind of underground grassroots project to reinstall community into these um, broken places. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's not just squatters who recognise that. It's, it's investors and councils um, you know, and uh, salvage for me was an interesting way to kind of theorize this 
convergence of two very different people. Um, salvage, of course, being the term that anthropologists like Anna Singh use to describe the kind of waste that's left in the aftermath of these huge projects of extraction that can then be, so, so mushrooms, for, exa- mm. for example, um, you know, the types of mushrooms, the Matsutake mushrooms that she's working with only grow in these, in the kind of aftermath of um, these extractive projects. And so hobbyists, enthusiasts, uh, enthusiasts, um, mushroom pickers kind of move in after capital is moved out and then forge a kind of lifestyle within these spaces based on the picking and selling of mm. mushrooms. So, so salvage here is kind of like a convergence. On one hand, it's sort of like it's a space where capital has kind of given flight um, and therefore allows kind of people like squatters or hobbyists to move in and kind of re- revalue that detritus that's, that's mm. produced. Um, but on the other hand, in doing that, they kind of make visible to capital the kind of profitability of recycling these spaces that can then quickly become part of this grassroots uh, movement to regenerate empty buildings mm. or uh, sell extremely valuable mushrooms that people pay exorbitant prices to eat. Yeah, it's really it's really interesting how it just kind of it just keeps going in a circle yes. <laughs> all the time. Yeah. Um, and I think squatters think that they, I mean, I, I think squatting wants to argue as a kind of form of activism that like w- while these spaces are run down, they, they have the potential to give us a kind of degree of autonomy that um, isn't available if we were purchasing new commodities all the time. And so mm. we can build a politics on this sense of decay, this is this aesthetic of decay um, and violence and so on. Yeah. While, you know, of course, having to resist gentrification because that's a... That's a real thing too. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting, the parallels between that idea and also uh, the environmentalism movement as well. Um, I am actually, I really want to ask you about how in touch you are still with the with the community and the movement and how you think COVID has sort of changed the way people navigate these spaces and see themselves in it as well. Because I think some of the things that you were talking about earlier, like self-autonomy is sort of, it's very similar language to how people are talking about like resisting COVID and resisting state, yep. and state measures and stuff like that. So yeah, absolutely. So I returned home in 2019 in February. Um, and obviously, I've kept close contact with a lot of those people who are now close friends of mine and contacts um, and people who I miss dearly and haven't been able to return to see, actually, mm. since COVID um, broke out at the end of 2019, I think. I mean, firstly, it was a jarring experience coming home to Melbourne after living in a squat for a year and then having to pay rent again, become a pretend academic, <laughs> learn the kind of routines of that lifestyle, and then, of course, be forced into it for several years in a row while we endured harsh lockdown. So it was difficult. I mean, it was really difficult to both adjust and to keep like a healthy contact and relationship with, with the people that I met during that year, who are nonetheless I'm still in contact with, of course, and some of whom are like invested in the project that I'm doing and pr- have provided some of my most valuable feedback and kind of trenchant criticism <laughs> as well. <laughs> I mean, on the other hand, I've also lost contact with a lot of people who, while I was living there, I wanted to kind of have a prolonged engagement with and keep in communication with, but fell radio silent. Like maybe they deleted their Facebook profiles or didn't, or their email, just, you know, they stopped responding to their emails or checking their emails. And that's, I mean, that's, that's a danger. I think in that space, there's like a high turnover of activists. There's a high turnover of groups in the planning stages of the project, like the initial group that I wanted to work with sort of dismantled. And disassembled, <laughs> like so, I think it was like three weeks before my fieldwork began. 
which is to say it's presumptuous to even arrange a research project sometimes in the squatting scene because these groups are so ephemeral mm-hmm. um, and you can never predict that the year of fieldwork that you want to do is actually going to be a sustainable project with one fixed set of people. And so and so keeping contact with a lot of those people that I met has been really hard and I've felt out of contact with them. And, and I think COVID like perhaps alienated a lot of people from that that movement as well. I saw debates in my sort of social media feeds and I, I argued with people who I became friends with over COVID mandates um, mm. and injections. And we saw this kind of, you know, this language again of autonomy emerging on one hand, an autonomy to my body and the right to reject a vaccine playing a huge role here. And on the other hand, a kind of language of moral responsibility to get vaccinated over your right to autonomy. And this kind of debate mm. sort of was like cleaving the movement in twain almost. Uh, it was a sense of like divide that people couldn't agree on. And we saw left people accusing people of being right wingers and squatters accusing people of being, you know, lifestyle mm. <laughs> anarchist as a pejorative. And so, so COVID was both a time of kind of division and also reflection I think for a lot of these people who now were also given the opportunity to kind of move back into squats because as in Melbourne there was a rent moratorium introduced and an eviction moratorium um, introduced to prevent people who are out of work from being evicted from their homes so we saw also a kind of resurgence of the possibility that squatting mm. could play a role here in in providing homeless people perhaps like the most vulnerable people in this instance to have somewhere where they could safely quarantine and um, and uh, you know p- perhaps get vaccinated and so this kind of language of mutual aid again playing a big part here in how the uh, future envision is kind of role in society mm, so so very very interesting <laughs> so I wonder yeah how did you sort of prepare for that time especially had you spent any time um, sort of like squatting prior to to that experience as well yeah, I'd never squatted, although I had, of course, been in activist circles where I knew squatters and had close friends who were squatters. And so when I first went to the UK, and of course had travelled and mm. sort of lived you know, in some ways stayed in squats or in hostels which have similar living conditions, of course, depending on where you go, as I'm sure And how you're much you're willing to pay. Familiar with. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I found that squatting itself was a new experience. The the kind of people that I was living with was not so much. But there's only so much you can do to prepare. I mean, in terms of my responsibilities as an academic, you kind of read as broadly as you can. You have your proposal and you stick to it religiously and mm-hmm. defend it. And you go into the field with lofty ambitions of, um, you know, doing a Marxist <laughs> analysis of squatting and bringing back, you know, this I know, a radical language to a to a lifestyle politics or whatever, whatever kind of angle you have on this. I think mine was, um, you know, I was really interested in the concept of squatting as a practice of salvage and salvage being some kind of like political project or kind of kernel of a communizing process or, uh, Mm. um, you know, something with a capacity to really challenge the way that we we think about housing, but also consumption value of, of derelict things. And so, and of course, that language is, is fun to play with and, and attractive. In anthropology, I guess um, that language is confronting and, and uh, interesting. And, and that's the way you kind of sell yourself to the community is that you have this project with the capacity to really change the way we think about something. You go into the project and you kind of, you live a life, uh, like for a year, you really settle into the rhythms and routines of living in a squat and you develop ideas, new ideas, and you encounter things that you're not familiar with that confront your very idea of justice or equality Mm. or you know even what politics can and can't be you know of course drugs played a huge role in the spaces that I lived in and I saw them as both a kind of liberatory and 
important facet of the movement and a potentially self-destructive thing. And of course, they're all aware of these debates and are having them constantly. And so mm. it was kind of a part of that. And so I came away from it a lot more educated and also engaged in their lifestyles and ideas. And, you know, I had the language that they were speaking um, and was taught that language and taught to participate. But, you know, had kind of lost the enthusiasm for, for squatting as a kind of potentially emancipatory project that I'd gone into the project with. Mm. Um, and, and like had a real need to now think through a lot of concepts that I wasn't familiar with um, to kind of like really figure out what the hell was going on there with race-based projects and, and the kind of legal gray areas in which squatting occupied and okay there was criminalization but there was the Occupy movement who a lot of these squatters had kind of um, participated in and had formed like a, an important political imaginary for them I think in terms of the role that homeless people can play in a global social movement mm. um, and so, and so I kind of just ditched a lot of the, the kind of um, ideas that I, that I had going into the movement and I had to kind of reconstruct my, um, my approach to that, to that field work. And, you know, in terms of field notes and interviews, uh, I think they, they play a really important process in that kind of like recuperative montage work that you do when you come back from the field because you're immediately thrown back into these spaces on one hand you're dealing with such particular ideas and thoughts and rambles that can have no relevance to your project but help you to kind of I think when you get the distance away from that to re reform your opinion and reform like your angle on on this on what your project is mm. um and so they played a hugely important role for me in terms of being invited back into those spaces at a time where I was both you know learning to reintegrate into society as an academic and uh, as as a renter and as as a professional you know while reading while while having these experiences uh, and then enduring lockdowns of course being a motivating factor here right um so much time to ponder <laughs> yeah time to time to really ponder what you've lost <laughs> that really i mean that experience with covid really highlighted to me what we aren't doing as mm. anthropologists in terms of debriefing young people who come back from the field uh, as well as preparing them to go into it yeah I um got a sense oh, I did um I can't remember what the class was called now but one of the classes that was definitely an undergrad class um where they were talking about like create like developing emotional relationships in the field both like romantic and otherwise and sort of like where the ethics stand on that sort of yeah. thing um and how sort of unprepared like people are just told oh just don't do it it's like very taboo and all this sort of stuff yeah. but that doesn't really everyone's circumstance going into the field is so different based on what it is that you're doing which I think is really interesting just to add on to that yeah I think that's a really important point you know we want we hear this language of you are living the the lifestyle that these people have and so the, the language is very much like kind of divided on one hand it's participant observation which means participation which means breaking down this kind of distinction between self and other you know you become the other or or you are going native mm. you know, we see this language reappear again mm. and again in anthropology um but then of course there's this also a kind of professional almost human relations language um or discourse that says that relationships shouldn't happen in the field or you know which is a i think a real failure to recognize the reality of fieldwork for a lot of people it's the i mean it's a lifestyle it's a lifestyle it's a it's mm. a way of life. You're kind of thrown into these spaces as a person and you naturally connect with a lot of the people who you live with and you value that connection as um, as important to you and it becomes a part of you. So then to kind of like keep this distance as an anthropologist is both a privilege 
and a difficult thing to to do and maintain. It's contradictory almost. Right. Yeah. yeah. They want you to be it's almost like there's this expectation that you like you fully almost assimilate, but then at the same time it's like, oh no, but remember you're coming home, you have to write up this this report on what you did almost yep. and, and and what people spoke to you about and then yeah there is and that creates that distance that professionalism plus like the ethics board thing yep. which I think is interesting too. Yeah I think the ethics process is a hugely important one and it's one of the few opportunities I got to really voice some of these concerns mm-hmm. um, and uh, and like express my ideas regarding like these experiences of coming back from the field and I talk a little about a little bit in the thesis about about violence um, while doing field work, which um, you know began, as far as I'm aware, largely in the blogosphere. Mm. Anthropologists were talking about kind of gendered experiences of violence, so especially women who went into the field and experienced sexual assault of some kind, and then were confronted with the idea that, you know, uh, I'm not an anthropologist; I'm a person in a community, um, yeah. and uh, if anything, violence is revealing to me here that. I am just another part of that community. Like violence in many ways is a form of initiation that says to us that now these people consider us to be a part of their community, if mm-hmm. that makes sense, which yeah. is a dangerous idea in a, prof- in a profession that values you know, boundaries and uh, critical distance and, and so on, um, but also integration and your ability to, mm-hmm. to live the lifestyle of the people that you work with. Yeah. It's very interesting. I want to finish on this question, but how do you think anthropologists can make radical change through theory or thesis, like in your experience out in the field or other forms of work, maybe perhaps alongside like academic pursuits? Yeah. Wow. Thanks for that, (laughs) for putting me on the spot. You're welcome. Um, It's an open-ended question. And I think, so this is my take and I'm, you know, of course, I am. I'm still kind of forming my thoughts on this, but I think in academia, especially, we're kind of haunted by this idea that um, colonialism and, you know, white nationalism or capitalism, the things that we want to change, are kind of identifiable uh, things rather than ongoing projects mm. that happen concretely in the spaces in which we live and conduct work and research and so on. And so. There are a number of like practical things that we can do, um, and so the aim of the subject, as you know, was to kind of reveal some of those things we take for granted. Um, uh, of course, like this language of colonial- colonialism should emerge alongside a recognition that you know um, decolonization can't happen without <laughs> the repatriation of land, or the you know. But also, there are things, symbolic things, that we can do to assi- to assist that project, like diversifying our bibliographies and paying credit to people who, you know, especially Indigenous thinkers and, um, and feminist thinkers who have long been <laughs> teaching and working with and struggling with the concepts that we, that we use. You know, I think anthropology always, for me, has been enmeshed in, in politics, and I can't imagine a poli- uh, an anthropology without a kind of political project to be engaged in. Mm. So I think there's a responsibility there of the anthropologist to not to represent the community that they enter, but to, you know, to engage in the struggles and the things that they care about um, and that you therefore come to care about as a person also enduring that, um, those forms of inequality, those injustices. And so I care very much about, um, about squatting and about housing justice. And, uh, you know, I think that's uh, um, an important topic for me, as well as you know, being well aware of the criticisms of that and the necessity to engage with um, 
critiques often coming, by the way, from the very people that we work with mm. of themselves and their practices um, and the need for um, new ways of thinking and new ways of doing, doing activism. And that was it. Thank you again, Adrian, for joining us on today's podcast. Today's episode was produced by me and edited by the wonderful Alex DeLoya. I'd also like to pay thanks to our other familiar strangers, Simon Theobald, Claire Bazau, Timothy Johnson, Sean Liu and Matthew Fung, Joe Clifford, Jared Sim and Runan Cheng. You can subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and all the other familiar places. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review with your likes and dislikes. It helps people find the show, us make the show better. If you would like to support us, you can check out our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the familiar strange, not the strange familiars, which is another podcast, just not ours. You can also find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropologies all in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. And if you'd like to contribute to the blog or have anything you would like to say to me or the other hosts of this program, you can email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Our music is by Pete Dabber, and a special thanks to Nitch Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening and we will see you again in two weeks for the next panel. Until next time, keep talking strange.